Hi everyone, welcome to Off Grid, the Not Really About Crosswords podcast. We have solved the crossword and we've stuck it in a blender and given it a whiz and we're going to sieve the juice to strain the good stuff out. We will also tell you our favourite clues and explain how they work to you. And if you want to know which one it was, this time it was number 28521 from The Guardian, set by Imogen on Wednesday the 11th of August 2021. So if you want to have a go at it, the link will be in the show notes. As always, the voices you're hearing are me, Dave. And I'm Void. As well as telling you stuff we like in the crossword, we will also, Dave and I, be subjected to a mini general knowledge quiz courtesy of general knowledge welcome back to the podcast general hello thank you for having me again always welcome so i said we're going to read out our favorite clues so we'll do that uh, as ever if you're not into crosswords particularly then skip this bit but we will explain them later so general would you like to read out your favorite clue please my favorite clue was 16 down god Imogen's work left in the wrong place eight letters and dave uh, my choice was 12 across, which was, can it have to be proved? Five letters. And mine was, winner of an inaccurate timepiece? Question mark. Six letters. Well, you can have a ponder about those for a bit, and we'll explain them a little bit later. But first of all, General, what caught your eye in the crossword? Uh, the word that caught my eye was checkmate. It comes from a Persian phrase meaning the king is dead. A few years ago, I was really, really big into chess as uh, my children were learning. I volunteered at their school's chess club, which is the largest club in their school. It's full of their school's <laughs> full of smart cookies. Not that much sports happening, but hundreds of kids in the chess club. Excellent. Sounds good to me. Yeah, that was great fun. I loved watching even the young ones as young as five years old learning chess. I think I think I knew that uh, checkmate came from a Persian word because I think chess traces back to uh, Persia originally, as far as we can, as far back as we can go, right? I believe so. Yes. I used to be into chess as well many years ago. Now I'm much more into crosswords. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I've never been a chess man, I'm afraid. I play about once a year these days whenever i catch up with my friend adam the archaeologist who um who <laughs> asked me one day if i was into chess and i said oh well yeah kind of and he said oh do you want a game then and i said okay d4 and he said well should i go and get a board and i said nah <laughs> let's just let's just play without one <laughs> which, which is a trick i used to be able to do but i struggle to now if you don't know it's a, a game called blind chess or memory chess and the idea is you just visualize the chessboard in your head and, and wow. announce your moves to each other and you either have a, a referee who has a chessboard that neither of you can see or you just police each other and one of you eventually says no you can't put your bishop there my pawn's in the way um, and, and then you lose there is a short story by Woody Allen which involves two academics playing chess by letter. Oh, postal um, chess, yeah. Postal chess, yeah. Um, only thing is that both of them are cheating. 
<laughs> it's, it's just the complications of, of this, this chess game, which is absolutely going nowhere. I mean, what is cheating in a postal game? Because, you know, the idea is that you have lots of time to contemplate your move in a postal game. I mean, I suppose if you asked someone else what you should do, then... I should have read this thing more recently. I didn't know we were going to talk about it. I can't remember the specific details, but I remember there was a story in which, the yes, these two academics were behaving not in a not in a, a sportsman-like and academic way. Anywho... It turns out I'm not very good at chess. I just I just enjoy watching the young kids learn it. And many of the older, well, I can't even say that. Even my own children beat me, you know. <laughs> they are much better at it than I am. Have you only just picked it up? Several years ago, I, I suppose. I didn't play as a child, so they learned it when they were four and five, and I learned it when I was in my 30s, so. Well, they're, they're bound to beat you then. Oh, so it's that kind of brain plasticity kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's why I usually volunteer for the younger age group and I stay with the five <laughs> to six year olds. <laughs> I can I, I can be at that level. I remember some silly variants of chess we used to play at my school, one of which was called suicide chess, where the object was to lose all your pieces and get yourself checkmated. And if you could put yourself in a position where your opponent could possibly take one of your pieces, then the rule was they had to take one of your pieces. So that made it easier to to lose your pieces. Another one was speed chess. So you have a chess clock Mm -hmm. and you only have like five minutes each to complete all the moves in your game. And of course, you can bind the two. Don't tell me you did chess boxing. (laughs) <laughs> we didn't do chess boxing another stupid weird interesting variant is uh you have four players and two games of chess happening simultaneously oh yeah and it works works best if uh the two boards are sat next to each other and the two two players on one team are also sat next to each other one of which is playing white on one board and the other one is playing black on the other board But you're playing as a team. And the way that works is if I was playing white and I took a black knight as my move and say Dave was my partner, I could then hand that black knight to him who would then have a spare piece which he could then put onto his board as one of his new pieces as a move. So instead of moving one of his existing pieces, he'd put an extra Deploy piece. Deploy extra his troops. Yeah. Um, and so whichever one of your team won a game, that's the whole game ended. So you're working together to get a victory on one of the two games, which would lead to situations where one of you would say something like, I need a bishop, I need a bishop. And your teammate would say, but I'll have to give up my queen to get a bishop. I don't care, give me a bishop, I need a bishop and I'll win. <laughs> Meanwhile, the, your opponents are saying, I need a rook to block his bishop. <laughs> and of course, that got very frantic. That sounds very fun. If, if you wanted to be really, really, really stupid, you would also turn the boards back to front. So you're playing the same game, but your pieces are on the opposite side of the board. So it's just a, a thing oh. to mess with your head. That would mess. So that's reverse. 
reverse yeah. doubles chess. Um, and if you combine all of them, you get reverse double suicide lightning chess, which is just <laughs> ridiculously stupid. And, and none of this is good for your chess game, really. <laughs> mm. But it's a lot of fun. That sounds very fun. Reminds me of uh, watching some of the older children at my school with multiple chessboards set up with three or four of them. And I don't know what they were doing, but they are way smarter than me. They must have been doing something similar to what you were discussing. Right. <laughs> A couple of years ago, my son was so into chess that for his seventh birthday, I 3D printed a chess set for him. <laughs> and he loved it. Excellent. He came to help me a couple of times during the process. Was it uh, a specialized design set of it, pieces? It was. It was pieces from Minecraft because he was also very big into Minecraft. Oh, very good. Excellent. <laughs> All the Minecraft uh, characters as chess pieces. <laughs> neat. Thinking about chess also reminded me of uh, fencing because many people call uh, fencing physical chess. Mm -hmm. It requires oh, okay. a lot of a lot of uh, strategic decisions as your opponent is quickly attacking you. Yeah. At my university, I was the captain of the women's foil squad, and I was I was a foilist. And this year, I didn't get to see much of the Olympics this year, but I did see someone that got the first ever medal for U.S. in the women's individual foil, and it was a gold. And she was oh, from. Cool. She was from Notre Dame, which is a school that we fenced against. So that was very, uh -huh. we never beat Notre Dame, but we, we tried. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I saw a little bit of the fencing, well, just a five minute clip from the Olympics and a little clip from the modern pentathlon as well. It was a, a Brit who won the male model pentathlon and I think he won the fencing section in that as well. I would really love to get back into fencing, but it may be a bit too old. Never. <laughs> I'm hoping my kids might might like it and get into it. I would love to do some like coach a little bit of fencing with some kids. I know the fencing split up into foil, epee, and saber. Saber, correct. What's what's the main differences between those? The main difference is where your target area is and how you attack. For a foil, you attack with the point of the weapon and your target area is just your torso. So no arms, no legs, no head, just point okay. as a torso. And for epe, it's also a pointing weapon, but your target area is your entire body. They could hit you anywhere. <laughs> and many epeists are very tall, so they can just have very long arms and can get you anywhere. <laughs> and for the saber, it's a slashing weapon and you have to hit with a side or I think the point also works, but the side of the weapon also works and the target area is anything above the waist, including the hands and head. Is so Epe the one that's uh, really flexible, almost wobbly? Uh, the foil is very flexible. Ah, okay. the, foil, the foil is the lightest weapon, so it's good for very small, fast people, which, which is what I am. I'm very, very small and could uh, easily 
turn my body so that they could not get my torso. <laughs> yeah. Saberists are very, very quick, very like, and they make lots of loud sounds like Hi-ya! as they go forward very quickly. <laughs> Intimidatory tactics. They, they are, they're very intimidating. Saberists are very intimidating. Do you know what the act of opening a champagne bottle with a sword is called? I do not. It's called saberage or saberage. And the idea is that you place the edge of the blade at the bottom of the neck of the bottle and then you very quickly slide the blade up in contact with the neck and as the blade hits the little rim as you start to get to the, the mouth of the neck suddenly the the forces will make the top of the bottle shear straight off uh, it's completely pointless but it's just a, a very <laughs> flashy way of uh, yeah. of opening a bottle of champagne if that's your if that's your way of showing off yes quite <laughs> Cool. Okay, Dave, how about we move on to your clue now? Give us the explanation of how it works, please. Okay, if you remember, it was, can it have to be proved? Five letters. Well, this one was a charade clue, so building the answer up out of parts, but given that the answer was only five letters long, the parts were going to be pretty short too. Uh, the bit that I thought was quite clever in this instance was, can it, <laughs> being an instruction to shut up? You know, can it? which is sh, that is to say the letters S-H. Uh, and then have is own. If you have something, you own it, theoretically. Um, to be is just a, a, a link word between the um, wordplay and the definition, which was proved. So sh plus own is shown. If you've shown something true to be true, you've proved it. It's short and sweet, but quite elegant, I thought. Um what did you find of interest in the uh, in the puzzle void? I looked at 15 down, the answer to which was bindweed. And this reminded me of a song called Misalliance by Flanders and Swan. If you don't know Flanders and Swan, they were a musical comedy duo who were British, uh, who were at their peak in, I'd say, the 60s, maybe 70s too. And this song, Misalliance, is about a honeysuckle and a bindweed plant which fall in love. And a couple of the verses go, Said the right-handed honeysuckle to the left-handed bindweed, Oh, let us get married. If our parents don't mind, we'd be loving and inseparable, inextricably entwined. We'd live happily ever after, said the honeysuckle to the bindweed. To the honeysuckle's parents, it came as a shock. The bindweeds, they cried, are inferior stock. They're uncultivated, a breeding bereft. We twine to the right, and they twine to the left. From which you might get the idea that the song isn't really about two plants falling in love. It's a bit <laughs> allegorical about uh, people's intolerance of other people's attitudes. But... The fact that the bindweed grows up in the opposite direction to the honeysuckle made me think of the fact that there is a scientific word for handedness. Do you know what that word is? 
This is chirality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, spot on. Um, and that comes from the Greek word for hand, yeah. which is, I think, chia. Uh, but certain chemical molecules can be chiral pairs of each other. And the, the technical word for that is an enantioma. So, for example, if you hold up your two hands and look at them, then they're mirror images of each other. So you can't put your left hand on top of your right hand and cover up your right hand exactly because they're slightly different shapes. But if a mirror image of your right hand was imposed, superimposed on your left hand, then it would cover it up completely. And so there's a couple of examples of chemicals like this. There's a chemical called limonene, which is found in oranges and it gives rise to the smell of oranges but that chemical's chiral pair is also found in lemons and that makes lemons smell lemony so depending on whether it's left-handed or right-handed it's it's orangey or lemony and there's another one called carvone which causes either the smell of caraway seed oil or the smell of spearmint oil depending on which whether it's left or right-handed is is it not the case that the the left-handed molecules are called levo something or other, and the right-handed molecules are dextro something or other, and yes. that's and that's why dextrose is a right-handed um, sugar molecule. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, spot on. Yeah, I was looking this up because I vaguely remembered hearing a story about a chemical which was in in one form was benign say the left-handed version but in its right-handed version it was a poison and i think mm. I, I might have read this in a story i wasn't sure but i looked it up and i found uh, that there's a chemical called brucine which has some limited anti-cancer uses uh, but it's probably not very good for you anyway but it is very closely related to another chemical i don't think it's exactly it's an antioma but it's very closely related to strychnine, which oh. is definitely not good for you. Um, <laughs> and in, in looking up uh, brucine, I found that it was mentioned in the Count of Monte Cristo. Quote, well, suppose then that this poison was brucine and you were to take a milligram the first day, two milligrams the second day, and so on. At the end of a month, when drinking water from the same carafe, you would kill the person who drank with you without your perceiving that there was any poisonous substance mingled with the water. And so I've got another question for you, which is, do you know what the word is for this gradual build-up of immunity to a poison by taking very, very tiny doses? Probably should do and may have done in the past. It, it's very reminiscent of the, the, the Princess Bride, isn't it, with, uh, with yeah. building up the immunity gradually <laughs> yeah. to whatever it was called now, yeah. And then the whole the whole sequence with the cups with the poison, but yeah. I can't I can't remember what the name yeah. for it is if I knew it. Well, I imagine that the sequence in the Princess Bride was probably inspired by the story of the person who this uh, concept is named after, and it's called Mithridatism, named after Mithridates, Mithridates the sixth, obviously. <laughs> Oh, well, yeah, I mean, the first the five had their own their own uh, claims to fame, didn't they? Yeah, exactly. 
Uh, Mithridates VI was the king of Pontus, which was uh, an ancient kingdom in Asia Minor in the lands around the Black Sea. And it was an independent kingdom in the first few centuries of the first millennium BCE. And Mithridates came to the throne age 15 after his father, Mithridates V, had been poisoned. And he began to suspect that his mother was out to get him because she wanted his brother to take the throne. So he ran away and started taking minor doses of poison to build up his immunity. <laughs> so called, according to legend. <laughs> yeah. Should probably say at this point, do not try this at home. Don't <laughs> try this at home, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the stories about people giving themselves immunity to poisons gradually, you kind of think, really? I, I can imagine it might work with some poisons, but I would imagine an awful lot of them, no. Yeah. I think probably if you were to try this, what you would actually be doing is poisoning yourself very, very, very slowly. <laughs> well, quite. <laughs> General, steer us away, please. Would you like to give us your clue again and explain how it works to us? Yes. My clue was 16 down. God, Imogen's work left in the wrong place. Eight letters. Here the definition is God. Imogen is the setter. So Imogen's work is her clues. With left or L in the wrong place, move the L a little bit and you get Hercules. Though some would just say he is a demigod and not an actual god, but I'm trying to remember the name of his mother. His father was Zeus. Mm-hmm. His mother starts with an A. Is it Alchemini or is that someone else? Mm, not sure. We're back on the old mythology again. <laughs> I believe it was Alchemini. Yeah. Ah, right. Okay. I yeah. need to read up on some more of that so I can keep up. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of uh, Greek mythology uh, fans in this house. Ah, <laughs> yeah. You quite often get in crosswords the setter referring to themselves, like you do in this clue. So, so Imogen is the pseudonym of this crossword setter, referring to themselves in the clue. Often that will refer to the letters I or the letters M E or something similar, but in this case, case it's a reference to. Not just the word Imogen, but the phrase Imogen's work. So that's a, a nice variation of referring to yourself. Yeah, I like that as well. It wasn't the normal I or me. Mm. That's how I, why I enjoyed it. Dave, let's move it on and take us to somewhere that you want to go. Yeah, strap yourselves in, folks. Uh, <laughs> six down was the word that uh, that uh, I'm one of them work with it was monastery this enables me to talk about one of my pet subjects ha 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 which is how the monastic scribal tradition influenced modern book typography and crossword terminology too in a bit um <laughs> first i'm going to go off down a little sort of uh, side alley because i thought i would start off by looking at the history of the words monastery and monk to see if and how they were related because you kind of think they both begin with m-o-n they probably are but it turns out they're not mm-hmm. they come from different places monk in its religious sense uh, comes straight down from latin monarchus meaning the same thing but monastery 
is related to all those mono words to do with one and solitary because it's a place where you go to live alone. So, so I was looking that up, but I found another meaning of monk which relates to printing. If you think about how the ink in a press is transferred to the plate or the form before it then gets pressed onto the paper. Yeah, it's modern... some sort of an object, isn't it, in printing? I don't know what type, though. Do tell. Well, <laughs> if you think in, in a modern mechanised press, that transfer of the ink will be with rollers. But in the old days of hand-operated presses, it would be via a couple of handheld tools, which were called ink balls. <laughs> uh, uh, they're basically a sort of cushioned dabber with a wooden handle, right? And you dip them in the ink, and then you work them against each other for a bit... Uh, to spread the ink out and to even it out uh, to get rid of any lumps or blobs before you then dab them on the form to ink it up, which you then press the paper against. Right? Yeah, I can picture those in in some TV shows, documentaries, where and they they have an old-fashioned printing press and they're demonstrating how it used to work. I've seen those, yeah. yeah. Right. So, But if you didn't work them against each other sufficiently and you ended up transferring a big blob of ink onto the onto the form of the plate then when you took the impression you would end up with a printed page with a dark blotch on it right okay and well i'll give you a quote from the classic joseph moxon's 1683 mechanic exercises or the doctrine of handiworks applied to the art of printing volume two. Oh, volume two right volume yeah. Two. yeah quote when the press man has not distributed his balls, some splotches of ink may lie on them, which he delivers upon the form so that the sheet printed on has a black blotch on it, which blotch is called a monk. Unquote. Um, and conversely, if you missed a bit while inking up the form so that the printed sheet had a blank area on it, that was called a friar. <laughs> Uh, and that that one is still in Chambers Dictionary for a pale patch on a printed page. Nice alliteration there. <laughs> but anyway, the main point I wanted to get to actually precedes print. This is come with me, if you will, back to the scribes in the monastery scriptorium, copying out their books by hand. You think the majority of the text that they were writing out, the body text, if you like, was going to be in black, obviously. Uh, but there were, of course, bits that you wanted to call attention to. Uh, the typical way to do that was to ink them in red. And the monks with the neat high-end writing would be doing all the black text. And uh, it would be awkward and inefficient for them to keep switching to different inks and different pens. So what you'd do is you'd specialise and you'd have different monks doing different bits. So he'd, he'd write all the black stuff and leave gaps for the red bits and then hand the finished page off to his colleague who would have the red pen and the red ink and fill in all the stuff like section, new section markers and page rules and decorated initials and all that kind of stuff. And the guy who did the stuff in red was called the rubricator, which is from the Latin rubricare to cover colour red. You know, Ruber, I think, is red, isn't it? Um <laughs> Uh, so one of the types of documents that the monks would create would be liturgical calendars. Um, and the bits that would be filled in by the rubricator were the bits that he's trying to draw attention to, uh, more important, would be saints' days, uh, and the details of any special observations that had to be carried out on those days, that sort of thing. Um, 
And that's the origin of, on you think about modern printed calendars, that the important holidays are shown in red sometimes. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's the origin of the phrase, a red letter day, to mean a day of special importance or significance. And say, you know, the, those uh, instructions of maybe in a liturgical book, how a, how a church service could be, should be conducted, that sort of thing, those are the bits that will be written in ink. And that came to be known as a rubric hmm. because it was done by the rubricator. And so that was later extended to any important instructions. And I think for those people who are familiar with kind of advanced crosswords, the extra instructions that you get at the front to sort of tell you what you have to do in addition to merely solving the clues, that is often referred to as a rubric. So that's where that comes from. And perhaps if we wanted to be historically respectful, we should start printing them in red. <laughs> um, now, one of the things that the rubricator I mentioned was, was kind of new section markers. Um, and that was traditionally a decorated letter C, which stood for capitulum, which is a little head. And it would be like at the head of the column. And it's related to chapter and capital and all those kind of words. And part of the way that letter was decorated was they might put a thin line or two down the right-hand side of the bowl of the letter C. And over time and repetition, maybe the bowl would get filled in and it would become more of a solid solid shape. And the lines down the right-hand side got a little bit longer and more prominent. And that's the origin of the modern paragraph mark, also known as Pilcrow. Now, unlike in MS Word, where the pilcrow goes at the end of the paragraph, in the medieval manuscripts, the capitulum went at the start of the paragraph. Now you take one step forward to Gutenberg and the invention of the printing press. So your press would come with one font or font of type, which is used for the black body text, right? Yeah. So you're typesetting the majority of the page, but you would still be leaving spaces for the rubricator to do his bit by hand. So the majority of the page was typeset and printed mechanically, but you were still handing off the, the red bits, and maybe you'd have an illuminator to do any illustrations and things like that by hand. But, of course, the press meant an increase in speed and a decrease in cost, so the demand went up. You could produce more books, so more people wanted books. So the printers and the publishers started offering their customers a choice. You can either wait and pay full charge while we get all the fiddly bits added to the pages manually, <laughs> or you can buy the book at a cheaper price with just the black bits done, take it home and do the rubrication yourself at your leisure. <laughs> right? And lots of, people went for that. lots of people went for that option, unsurprisingly. It's like, yeah, yeah, just give me the book. I want the book. I want the book. Um. And so lots of those books that were taken home, they never actually got the rubrication done at all, so the gaps stayed there. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is where the modern book typesetting tradition of a first-line indent came from. That little gap at the start of the paragraph is where the capitulum should be but isn't. So we should all now take our red pens and draw little <laughs> draw little trees in, in, in the little gap at the start of every paragraph. Yeah, absolutely. Now I'm aware oh, I've wow. used up a lot of time there. Boyd, you had a clue about a timepiece, didn't you? What was that all about? 
My, I did have a clue about a timepiece. Yes, 19 down. Winner of an inaccurate timepiece, question mark, six letters. This was a double definition clue. So winner was one definition, and of is a little link word. So in other words, you can get the definition of or from this other bit of the clue. And the other definition was an inaccurate timepiece, question mark. So nowadays, all our timepieces tend to be digital and they all are very accurate because they get their time from the internet. So <laughs> they keep perfect time. But older timepieces, clocks usually, if you turn them around and looked at the back of them, you would see a little slot, usually curved, with a notch sticking out of it, which was movable. And you <laughs> could shift this notch either to the left or the right to make your clock tell time a little bit faster or a little bit slower to compensate for any inaccuracies in the mechanism. I think that's called a regulator, although I might be wrong about that. But the reason you would need to do that is because your timepiece might be a loser or a gainer of time. <laughs> so the answer to this clue was gainer uh, a winner is a gainer, and a and possible inaccurate timepiece might be a gainer. So I like that. And it also made me think of a French verb, gagner, which has several different meanings, one of which is to win or to earn, another of which is to gain. So, yeah, nice short clue. Clever. Very good. I enjoyed it. That was nice. Right, I think it's time for our general knowledge quiz. General, have you got something for us? I do. So my first uh, quiz question for you is inspired by Eight Down Ermin. So I'm a big animal fan. I love animals. I love learning about all animals. So we all know an ermine is a weasel, but what other animal shares this name? Oh. What, another animal that's called ermine? Yes. Okay. Well, now I do remember last episode, General, you were talking about the magic roundabout, and there was a cow in the magic roundabout called Ermintrude. But that's probably not the answer to your question. That is not the answer. <laughs> no. uh, are, so. are we talking another mustelid, or are we talking some other uh, class entirely? Another class entirely, yes. Ah. So would it be another white animal? It is a white animal. An animal that can be white. Ah. So is it another animal which has a white winter coat? No, it's not just a winter coat. It's white all the time. It's actually white with black spots. Ah. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Are we still in, in the mammals here? It is not a mammal, no. Ah, so maybe a bird. Or an insect. <laughs> Whoa, okay. a white insect with black spots. Is it a type of ladybird? No. no or a no. butterfly? Oh, very close. Moth. Very. Well, in that case, it must be a moth then. A moth. <laughs> an ermine moth. An ermine, yes. They are... Very beautiful if you look them up. 
They are white with black spots, and they have a small, very fuzzy head. <laughs> Their head is very adorable. And they're actually not found in the U.S. I think a lot are found in Europe. Yeah. We'll be sure to go and look those up. Yeah, look for them. <laughs> yeah. I'll keep my eyes open wider in the garden. But don't eat them. They are poisonous. Birds will not eat them. <laughs> I don't think many people would choose to try and eat a moth, whichever species it was. Dusty things. Mind you, if you were going to try and eat a poisonous moth, eat it in very, very <laughs> tiny places one day at a time. Okay, what's the next question? I, I don't think we can really claim a, a point for that one. We had to be led quite a long way down the road. Indeed, uh, yes. Well, hmm, I was hoping that was the easiest one. <laughs> <laughs> so my other word is inspired by Five Down, which is Painted Desert. Mm. I don't know if either of you have seen the Painted Desert or seen pictures of the Painted Desert, but it is very beautiful. Having yeah. solved it, I went away and looked it up and saw some pictures online of it. Yes. So. Yeah. Multicolored strata of rock. Yes, indeed. It is located in Arizona. It's the, if you imagine the sort of technicolor westerns of the 50s and 60s and the cowboys riding through rocky terrain with great outcrops behind them where the Native Americans are lurking to ambush them. Picture those rocky outcrops in your mind, and those are the ones that are in the painted desert. <laughs> yeah. I'm, unfortunately, I think my question might be a little diff more difficult than the ermine one. So, okay. Well, fire it at us and we'll see what we do. <laughs> Since I'm, you know, from the U.S., here's a little U.S. geography for you. Eek. Eek. <laughs> do you know which national park the Painted Desert is located in? There are only 63 national parks in the U.S. to choose from. Oh, is that all? Oh. <laughs> right. Let's just run through them quickly. and uh... So, the Painted Desert, it's, it's Arizona, right? Yes, it's in Arizona, that is correct. Yeah. And okay. it's, it's near to the the, uh, the Grand Canyon, isn't it? It's kind of like one of the offshoots from it, is that right? Or... It is, yes. Yeah. Oh, so is that, is it a part of the extended Grand Canyon region? It, it is it's very close to it, yeah. But it's in its own national park. Oh, okay. Which so is not the got, Grand Canyon. Not the Grand Canyon. Okay. Hmm. Uh, would it be? Would it have a Native American name? It does not. Ah. Oh dear! I have stumped well, you. It, yeah. Well, it's it's going to be one of those things you either know or you don't, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. we, we, we clearly don't. So uh... I mean, it's it's not Yellowstone because uh, that's. That's Wyoming way, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's that's about the only one that's really well known to Brits, I think. And this, <laughs> Yosemite is California. Oh gosh, I don't recall. I think it's out that way somewhere. Ah, uh, I, I think you might have to give us a hint. Oh, a hint. Hmm. If if it's possible to do so. I don't know. Um. Oh, well, the clue mentioned the Badlands, so I don't suppose it's called the Badlands National Park, is it? It is not. That would have been handy. It's yeah. going to be a lateral thinking, though. That would have been handy. <laughs> Shall I give uh, you the answer? I think you're going to have to. 
It is the Petrified Forest National Park. Uh, oh. I've heard of that. Yeah. I just couldn't yeah. bring it to mind. Which yeah. has a lot of fossilized uh, conifer, conifer trees that Makes was sense. created about 200 million years ago when the wood was uh, quickly buried by the water. And yeah. So what geological period would that be? Oh, gosh. I don't know. <laughs> Put you on the spot. You put oh. me on the spot. I can edit this out. The petrified trees are very beautiful, very colorful. When wood fossilizes, it has very many beautiful colors from all of the minerals, like the iron and the manganese and the carbon getting into there. Oh, she'll have to search out some links to pictures and put them up on the blog when we release this episode. More, thing, more things to look at pictures of, yes. And oh dear, I just gave you the answer to my third question. My third question was the easiest of the three, was why is it called the uh, petrified forest and what kind of trees were there? Uh, okay, well I would, I would have known why, I might not have known what type of which yeah. I shouldn't have said that before. <laughs> Did you want to try and come up with a third question? It doesn't matter. We've had fun chatting. We've chatted quite a while. Oh, there we go. I, I found what, what period the uh, fossils were from the petrified forest. Ah, so that, that could be the emergency question. You can that is that our emergency us. question, yes. Uh, so in, in which period they were, they were fossilised, as it were? Correct. Cenozoic, Devonian. Cambrian, Jurassic, Triassic. Oh, there you go. <laughs> oh, Triassic. Just <laughs> throw out some names. It was the late Triassic. Okay. Well, that is million years ago. one and a half points for each of you. <laughs> Point and a half. Oh, well, there you go. Hooray, internet points. Right, I think... After all that, it's probably about time we wrap it up. Thanks for listening, listeners, if you have been listening, if you've managed to put up with it all. <laughs> Please subscribe if you haven't already. Show notes and probably pictures of all these interesting things will be at offgrid.tlmb.net. Okay, if you are cryptic crossword inclined, then you can find my puzzles online at crossword.info forward slash skirwingle. And we're both findable on Twitter, where my handle there is also at Skirwingle. And I'm at the void TLMB. And if you've enjoyed the references to the classical world we've had in the last couple of episodes, then maybe you could try out the crossword on my blog from July 2020, if you haven't already. And that's at tlmb.net slash blog. General, is there anything you'd like to recommend this episode? Well, I recommend following Liari77 underscore Becky on Twitter. And if you want another uh, classical crossword to look at, the recent one on liaricryptics.blogspot.com, you will find one. And doesn't Liari77 do some Twitch streaming as well? Yes, she does. I also recommend checking her out, Liari77 on Twitch. Thank you very much for helping us out, General. No problem. Thank you for having me again. That's about all from us this time. Uh, see you next time. Goodbye. Bye.
that was Off Grid. If you've enjoyed it, please tell a friend. And of course, if you can rate and review us on your platform of choice, that would be lovely. And subscribe too. Thank you to Imogen for the puzzle, which was featured in this episode. And thank you also to the Trudy for our theme tune, Speedman, which was once featured by Mrs. Norman in our music and movement class. Come on, children, let's protect your train. And also I'd like to say hi to Richard and thank you for getting in touch, Richard, and letting us know that if we encounter a 404 dead link on the internet like we did in episode zero, there is always the Wayback Machine on the Internet Archive to check up on, which enabled us to confirm that yes, as Dave suspected, the name of the Grand Prix was changed to the Palm Door to be in keeping with the Palm motif on the coat of arms of the city of Cannes. Yay! Thank you, of course, to you for listening. We wouldn't do it without you. Alright, we'll be back in a fortnight. Join us then. Thank you and goodbye. I've got my tea.